You're listening to Scalay Sisters, episode number 18. Welcome to Scalay Sisters, the podcast for the classical homeschooling mama who seeks to learn and grow while she's helping her children learn and grow. Scalay Sisters is a casual conversation about topics that matter to those of us in the trenches of classical homeschooling who yearn for something more than just checking boxes and getting it all done. I'm your host, Brandi Venzel. You can find me at Afterthoughts, that's my main blog, and also Teaching Reading with Bob Books, which is where I keep my line of printable phonics lessons. You can hear more from me on my other podcast, Aftercast. Both Pam and Misty joined me as co-hosts for this episode. Pam is an author, speaker, blogger at pambarnhill.com, and you'll probably recognize her from her two popular podcasts, Homeschool Snapshots and Your Morning Basket. Misty is a second-generation homeschooler with five kids and too many projects. She writes about practical classical homeschooling at Simply Convivial and about organizing attitudes at Simplified Organization. This episode is sponsored by Plan Your Year. Plan Your Year is the homeschool planner that shows you how. It walks you step-by-step through creating a homeschool plan unique to your home, your kids, and your family. There are over 40 printable planning pages plus an 80-page planning guide where Pam walks you through creating your plan. Nothing ever expires and you get free updates every year. It's the only homeschool planner you will ever need. Check out a free sample pack of planning pages and more info at freehomeschoolplanner.com. In today's episode, we have a conversation that gives you the lowdown on narration. It's not so much about the how as it is about the why. With that said, we ask for your patience with the sound quality. We had some trouble with Misty's microphone and we couldn't get rid of all the static in the editing process. We hope all the fun and good ideas in this episode will help you forgive us for the momentary decline in sound quality. And so, without further ado, let's get to it. Let's start off with our Scalay RDA. Who wants to go first? You go. You want me to go? Oh, yeah. You're never first. Go first. That's true. I'm never first. Um, okay, so mine for today is... A book called Vittorino de Feltra and Other Humanist Educators by William Woodward. I don't remember if I've ever actually used this one. I've been blogging through it very, very slowly for a number of months, and I'm still only on page, like, I don't know. What I have in front of me is page 67. I just have fallen in love with this Vittorino de Feltra book, but also not just because of the guy. But because I have this really super old copy, and it was published in 1905. Okay, I was going to say, if you say 1971, you're dead. Uh, (laughs) It's so old. It's from the 70s. No, It's from 1905. And someone who owned the book obviously was taking a class and so has written some of their class notes in the margins. Oh, nice. I have everything Hmm. from guides to pronunciation of the Italian names (laughs) to 
little notes, some translations of little snippets of Latin. This book is just blah, 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 and then Latin and no translation. Like you have to go figure it out if you want to know what it's saying. Anyhow, it's been so interesting. I I find myself wondering, like, who was this person? What was the class they were taking about? Like, they will make notes in the margins about how, you know, this part right here is like Froebel, who was the guy that developed kindergarten in Germany in the 1800s. So they're tying it to other philosophers or something. And I don't know. It's just really fascinating. The notes in the margins have been so much fun. I'm really enjoying reading the book and I find myself, I'll read, you know, five pages. I can just sit there and think about it for a week. (laughs) There's just so much on every page. The cool thing about this book, though, is that the beginning part of it, so I would say half of it maybe, is an actual biography of Vittorino de Feltra himself. And he's sometimes called the father of the Renaissance. And then after him are these actual little essays that were written by other humanist educators around his time. So that's why it's called Other Humanist Educators. It only tells his life story, but then it has these little educational, like philosophical treatises afterwards. So I'm excited to dig into those, but I haven't finished the biography yet. Like I said, I'm only on page 60 something, but it's just so good. I mean, he was a Scully sister, you guys. (laughs) (laughs) He's so our people. (laughs) I mean, he didn't know it, but I think he even would have liked one of our bumper stickers. I I would like one. I would like one. I'm holding them hostage. (laughs) (laughs) No, I actually was thinking I need to, I need to mail them to you guys. So. I'll do that soon. <clears throat> anyway, so that's mine. Who wants to go next? Well, I have one has been inspired by Don Garrett's posts on Pam Barnhill's blog. <laughs> Woohoo! So mom needs a hobby, right? Right. Okay, this was already, I have to say, this was on my New Year's resolution list before Don's post, but I haven't touched it. I know how to cross-stitch. My mom taught me when I was like 10 or something like that. I did a little here and there when I was a kid. And I started this project when I was pregnant with my third and she is nine. So (laughs) nearly 10 years ago, I started, (laughs) I found a pattern that I really liked and I was sitting a lot because I was watching, you know, supervising two toddlers playing while pregnant. So I just did a lot of sitting around. And so I started this cross-stitch project and I changed the colors to be a colors that I liked because it's just kind of a geometric type thing and I really like it. And it's not done yet. <laughs> I probably did about half of it in the first year and then I've only picked it up here and there ever since then. And it's been on my new year resolution to finish it three times since then. <laughs> this is the third time that it made it onto the list. But this time I really, really mean it. <laughs> and then Don published her article. So I was like, okay, okay, fine. I really, really will. <laughs> That's funny. And now is it counted cross stitch? Yes, it is. Okay. Yeah, I was a big counted cross stitcher. Were you really? Oh, yeah. When I was in high school, I mean, I made like entire samplers. I've made a few different samplers and a a number of different things. Actually, of all the kind of crafty needle hobbies I've ever had, I would say that I was finished the most things. 
with counted credit (laughs) when I was in high school. But Misty, I can go one better because I have a pink baby blanket. I started when I was pregnant with Olivia. That's still not done yet. (laughs) She'll be 12 in June. That's hilarious. And so, you know, I've drugged this yarn around with me. I've made other things since then. And then I've started more knitting projects than I care to count. And I've never actually completed a knitting project other than a, a dishcloth. (laughs) See, I went on a big crochet kick Mm -hmm. for several years. So the the cross stitch went away. But I really would like this thing framed and on my wall. So that's my goals by the end of the year to have it finished, framed and on the wall. It's really close to being done. It's so close. I still have a lot of cross-stitch stuff. I don't know that I could do it. I don't know if my either my arm's long enough or short enough to be able to do it anymore. Well, I have some craft projects related that I would like to start, but I'm not letting myself start anything new till I finish this one. There you go. Good idea. What discipline. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's not finished yet. We'll see. (laughs) Dawn's whole post series has been convicting me because, you know, right now I really don't have much of a hobby. And so I need something. I just don't have one. (laughs) So I need to get one. I have a bunch of, I have a lot of supplies. I just need to pick up something and work on it. So Mm -hmm. is podcasting not a hobby? (laughs) Well, you know, we said that homeschooling was not a hobby. I don't know. That really begs the question because honestly, I do the work that I do podcasting and things like that because I really do enjoy it. If I didn't, I would never keep it up. Mm Mm-hmm. But when you reach the point where it's starting to support your family, then is it a hobby anymore? Does it become a job? Mm -hmm. It's good when you like your job, but it's still your job. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. It's really a tough one because when people ask me, well, what's your hobby? I would say, oh, it's blogging and podcasting. But I just don't know if that fits anymore. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Right. It's still something you like to do, but does it count as a hobby anymore? It's not a hobby blog. Yeah. It's not a hobby podcast. You know, it has other other purpose. What, what I find interesting about the cross stitch, and I think this is one reason why I put it down for a while, it really slows you down. Mm-hmm. I don't like to feel slowed down. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking, how annoying. Just... <laughs> <laughs> so I figure it's probably good for me. Right. But it's like it flips some kind of switch or something. You have to go into this other mode that I'm not used to going into and that's not actually very comfortable. And so that's why every time I've picked it up, I haven't gotten very far in the last, oh, five years. (laughs) But it's time I need to like put myself in that space and it'd be good for me to finish it. So, Misty, I know you use audiobooks in your homeschool because uh, you're not a huge fan of reading aloud. Do you listen to audiobooks? Oh, yes. That's yes. <laughs> so do you do that while you're uh, doing your cross stitch? Yes. Okay. That was going to be my suggestion was uh, yeah. use that time to. Right. And I have two audiobooks, two long ones that I'm in the middle of right now. So that also goes along with that. That'll give me hmm. something to do there because I have found that when I've listened to something really good, like when I was listening to Brothers Karamazov on audio. I was listening to it while doing dishes, while cooking dinner, while doing the laundry. And somewhere along the line in that story, I totally missed something important because the end didn't make any sense at all. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) 
<laughs> so I'm uh, right now. I'm listening to City of God on audio, and I need something where I'm sitting and not doing something else because I can't. yeah. Anyway, I think the two will go together well. But yeah, I've had that happen when I've listened to a podcast. I get to some part and they're referring back to some other part in the podcast. And I'm like, yeah, I totally missed that. <laughs> I struggle with that anyway. Yeah. Like I, I'm, I'm so far. Well, I'm so far in my head. I don't have to be doing anything else. I can just be listening to something. And I'm so far in my head yeah. talking to myself. I, Misty, I know you do this too. Yep. That I totally like zone out what the podcast is even saying or, yep. or the audio book. I'm not a good listener. I'm not a good listener. <laughs> <laughs> so Pam, what about you? You have a school ARDA? I do not. <laughs> I just, I just they, wanted to catch you. <laughs> I, I, you're not catching me at all. They've Okay, so they've been messing with me about this since we got on. They're like, where's your school ARDA? And I'm like, I don't have one, but I do have something to say about that. <laughs> Sometimes I think you need a break. <laughs> I've been working on a big project for work. And honestly... It probably would have really helped me because and Misty's sitting over there going, yeah, you wouldn't have been coming to me all this time moaning about the struggling you're doing if you'd been reading something. I've just been wrapped up in this big project. And so between that and just, you know, a number of circumstances that have gone on, I've been reading fluff and I've really been enjoying it. <laughs> you know, before I had kids, I could lose myself in a book. I mean, I could just like really sit down and lose myself in reading something and enjoy it so much. And I've really struggled with that since having kids because, you know, you have to be paying attention to what they're doing so they don't burn the house down. <laughs> anyway, I've been kind of getting lost in my fluff and it's been really nice. So, no, I'm thinking about stepping into the living page uh, soon. It's oh. been on my shelf and it's been calling me, but I'm not reading anything or doing anything right now. So, Misty, what's that episode called that we already yeah. recorded? But it's, it's Amusing Ourselves to Leisure? Is that yes. what it's called? Yes. I was, so, like, I was like, Pam, it's okay. We yeah. <laughs> this is basically a little taste of that episode. Because <laughs> oh, that one will Pam. come out after this one, right? Yeah. Well, yes, you need to sometimes, between working on something and having real scolay, sometimes you have to have amusement. Even Aristotle says so. Okay, well, see, I, I knew there was a reason I wasn't going to let you guys browbeat me about this one. <laughs> I was like, it's really okay that I don't have one because sometimes you have to take a break. Right. Well, we weren't going to tell you about Aristotle, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he and I were like this. <laughs> right. I know, I need to get you a shirt that says Aristotle is my homeboy. That oh, I would so wear that. I okay, that that's shirt. my new goal. I gotta find one. That'll be our Scully Sisters t-shirt. Oh my it. word. That would actually be so fun. I love that. <laughs> I got way distracted by that. <sighs> all right. Well, I guess we will transition to today's topic, which is all about narration. And Misty, do you want to set us up for this one? I'm thinking it's going to be less like a how-to, but more why, and also just how all-encompassing and broad narration really is. Like, it's not this super specific one way to do it practice that we all have to, like, figure out how to do, you know, capital R, right? 
narration is really like the summary word for what has to. Charlotte Mason just calls it the act of coming to know or the act of knowing. So when we talk about education being coming to know, coming to an understanding, then narration would be an integral part of the process, right? Uh, There's this book called The Seven Laws of Teaching. It was interesting when I was doing a little bit of research, I knew that this book or the author of this book, John Milton Gregory, was kind of around the same time frame as Charlotte Mason's, but I didn't quite know how they related to each other. Seven Laws of Teaching has been used for, I don't know, 20 years at least uh, in classical schools as teacher training. So I looked up the dates and this book was first published when Charlotte Mason was 12 years old. So John Milton Gregory predates Charlotte Mason, although it's in the same kind of historical backdrop. But he's also American. He's in Illinois at the turn of the 20th century. So he has a whole law that says, the law of the learning process is the seventh chapter, sixth law that says, the pupil must reproduce in his own mind the truth to be learned. And then he has a whole chapter that's just on that. So he never uses the word narration. But he's saying that in order to know the student, the learner, has to reproduce or use the material in his own mind. But then how do you know that he's done that? You have him actually say it out loud or do something with it. Here's a quote, too, that he also specifies that he doesn't mean that learning is rote memory. So he acknowledges that rote, just memorizing the lesson, which is sometimes like in Little House on the Prairie, I think, learning their lesson meant like memorizing it in their books. And he says, a pupil is sometimes said to have learned the lesson when he has committed it to memory and can repeat or recite it word for word. This is all that is attempted by many pupils or required by such teachers as consider their work done if they can secure such verbatim reproductions. Education would be cheap and easy if this were real learning and could be made to stay. Hmm. Right. Okay. So I'm thinking back to my conversation with Sonia Schaefer about narration that I did for the Your Morning Basket podcast. And she really stressed in that conversation that we were having that when students are doing narration, it has to be in their own words. Yes. It's not just parroting back or reciting what you heard. It's the process of taking it all in, thinking it through and reorganizing it and putting it back out in your own words that makes it mm-hmm. such a powerful thing. Yes. Yeah. Well, and you know, I have this test. Well, I shouldn't say test. This research thing. for Okay, so it's from Science Daily. I just pulled it up in case we needed it. And I think it dovetails perfectly. But here's an interesting aspect to add to this. So this is a study done at the University of Montreal in, well, the study was published in 2015. I don't know how long they did it. But They were talking about this idea that repeating something aloud boosts your verbal memory. Now, I think they even meant with rote learning, right? So if you're trying to memorize your math facts, maybe you would say them out loud and that that hearing it would be more effective than if you just did it in your mind. But they went a step further and found that it's more effective. So the repeating aloud, it boosts your verbal memory even more if you are addressing someone else when you do it. Oh, interesting. Hmm. That was really interesting to me. So I I mean, I, of course, there are probably a million reasons why that could be so I mean, it could be as much as I'm thinking about, you know, if a child's narrating to me, and I don't understand what they're saying. (laughs) 
I can tell them and they have to say it another way. And that act of having to reframe it again, maybe because they didn't make sense, straightens out, I think, the process in their brain. Yes. You know what I mean? But anyhow, I just thought it was so interesting because I had read a study before about and I couldn't find it. I tried to find it. It was uh, the basis of advice that was given to college students. It was basically like, you know, you go to a lecture and when you're done, you should walk away, walk outside of your classroom and give yourself basically this. They suggested 30 seconds, this 30 second mini narration where you just kind of run back over everything in your mind really quickly. And so I thought, well, that's an interesting argument for narration. But, you know, it was just kind of it wasn't saying say it out loud. It wasn't saying say it to anybody else. It was just saying to review And there's nothing wrong with that. But it was interesting to read this where they're saying, if you hear something and tell someone else, that's a really powerful thing. Well, I wonder if that's kind of establishing a relationship with it more so, because now you've shared it with Mm. a person, like that's more personal than even just with yourself. Mm. Now you have a connection with another person and this information together. I wonder if it has something to do with, you know, when you do a narration, you go through the steps of creating a composition in your head. So you're sifting through information. So if you're just thinking about a lecture that you just attended, you might not be as analytical about the information. And I hate to use the word analytical because I know we're talking about like six and seven year olds and, you know, we're thinking about more of a synthetic thing there. But because when you're saying something back, you're having to really sift through and make judgments in your head, it's almost like a twofold process. In order to go out and say something to somebody, you've got to think about it once. So you didn't just do it one time, you did it twice. Mm. Hmm. Does that make sense? True. Yeah. Well, and two, when, when I'm thinking about something after I've read it just to myself, in my head, the idea is clear. And then when I try to say it, Mm. I can't, you know, it's not, my brain was, you know, filling things in, but not necessarily with the right words. But to say it to another person, you've got to use words that actually mean what you want to mean. And I think we can let ourselves off the hook, let ourselves be fuzzy and say that we've understood it. But you can't be fuzzy when you're trying to communicate it to another person. Right. You know, they had that study come out where they t- compared people who took notes on a laptop with people who took notes written by hand. And basically, the people who took notes on the laptop were able to capture almost every word in the class, but they didn't remember as well as the person who wrote by hand, even though they had to pare it down. But I wonder, I mean, so, the, you know, of course, there's the whole hypothesis that it's the actual act of writing by hand. Mm-hmm. But I read another person who interpreted that study and said, what if it's because we have to pare things down because you can't capture every single word when you're writing it by hand. And so you're actually sifting the information mm-hmm. and you're either reforming three sentences into one more concise sentence or you're dropping things that you think are unimportant details and focusing on the most important. Th- but either way, it's kind of becoming your own thing. Right. You've just worked on the material yourself. Yeah. You're right. Processing the information as you go. Yeah. I'm just wondering if telling someone else is kind of like that same effect because you can't tell them everything, right? So you have to distill it when you're telling someone else. And so I'm wondering if it's a similar effect as the note-taking situation where it just requires a different level of processing maybe. I think so. I think, you, I think you're probably onto something. And this is why little kids can't take notes. <laughs> Yeah, because yeah. they can't process on the go to figure out what to write down. It's a learned skill. 
Yeah. One of the things we've been having our girls do in church is one of them almost cried when we suggested taking notes and we're like, okay, we're not trying to make someone cry. <laughs> we were just sure. trying to train. I mean, we were, but you know, don't tell her. No, um, we were just trying to train the attention a little bit more. So we decided doodling. It's supposed to be connected to what they're hearing. So they're still kind of learning to process what they're hearing when the pastor's speaking, but they're using pictures. And I Anyway, it seems to be more effective because with the note taking, they couldn't decide what was important and what wasn't. And then they just got frustrated because they couldn't possibly keep up. Mm -hmm. That is interesting because your kids have been doing narration since they were six. So does that just kind of shoot this whole theory out of the water? Because they've been practicing sifting through that information. But I guess it's still different as opposed to like hearing something, having a few minutes to process and sift and then telling it back as opposed to doing the process and sifting in the act of listening and immediately writing something down. So I guess- Yeah, you're adding more there to be writing it down and to be doing it on the fly. Well, because if you think about it with note taking, you're writing something down while trying to listen to the next sentence at the same time. Yeah. Kind of like reading aloud where you're at the place that you're reading aloud, but you're also ahead. So you know what's coming and you're kind of at two places in the book at one time. I think it's kind of like that. So note-taking is requiring you to multitask, I think, versus the straight narration. You do one thing, you listen, and then you do one thing, you narrate. Probably the note-taking takes more maturity than... Plus, it requires spelling. One of my girls was very upset because she was pretty sure she couldn't spell what the pastor was saying. (laughs) (laughs) And obviously, we should cry if that's the case. (laughs) It's what I do. (laughs) Well, at least she cares. (laughs) I suppose I should think of it that way. You're right. (laughs) So Misty would say your job there is done. (laughs) She'll she'll now teach herself how to how to spell automatically, right? Because she cares. That is that how it goes. (laughs) Uh, So far, that's not been the result, but I'll uh, keep hoping. (laughs) (laughs) So this is in Seven Laws of Teaching, the law of the language. Uh, He says, we master truth by expressing it and are glad when we have clearly expressed our thought. But in order to make talking into thinking, there must be independent and original effort, not a mere parrot-like repetition of the words of other people. The pupil himself must do much of the talking. Hmm. So this Mm. this is a different law than that other one. This one is kind of what goes on in the lesson itself. And he's saying the lesson can't be just the teacher, talk, talk, talk. It has to be the teacher saying something and then hearing what the students say, because that's how you find out what they understand and how they understand what you're saying. You have to make sure that you're communicating to them. And the best way to do that is to listen to them. So it's not to give them like a multiple choice test or fill in the blank or... (laughs) Yeah, I don't think that that's actually conducive to learning. (laughs) Well, you know. (laughs) No comment. (laughs) Okay. I'm going to behave myself today, and I'm not going to say what I was thinking. Of course, now I don't know what to say, so I'm just going to be quiet. (laughs) (laughs) So how is narration going for you guys? Are you guys both using it right now? Yes. Yes, I am. like the first time ever I could say that. (laughs) Pat yourself on the back. (laughs) I am. I'm doing it right now. 
Okay, so a few things have helped. We're using writing and rhetoric for writing. And so that's really helping because depending on the level of the student, they're either reading Aesop's fables or short narratives. You know, you have to stop and narrate at the end of each one of those. That was really good. I had started at the end of last year. I had added narration to everybody's spiral notebook list after Mm -hmm. I had spoken with Sonia. And I was just really convicted about, oh, you really need to be doing narration. So I'd added it to everybody's spiral notebook list. And I was just doing it with the kids every day. And we were just learning narration as a skill in Mm -hmm. and of itself. So it wasn't like we were narrating history or literature or anything like that. We were learning to narrate and we would be doing it with Aesop's fables or 50 famous stories or something like that. Yeah. And uh, that went really well. And then when we started back this year, we started doing it in the writing and rhetoric. And so that was really good practice for us. And then I noticed that one of the things that writing and rhetoric does is when you move into book two of it, it starts easing them into written narration. I don't know if either one of you are familiar enough with the program. So all through book one, you're orally narrating. And then you get into book two and you continue the oral narration. But then after you finish that exercise, it has a place where you label three different little snippets of the story as beginning, middle or end. And then you Mm. write your one sentence about the beginning of the story, your one sentence about the middle of the story, and your one sentence about the end of the story. I was like, oh, this is good because it's going to get him into learning how to like take what's in his head and arrange it on paper as kind of a mini little written narration. Which, by the way, I think it should be mentioned in this episode, so we can just do it right now. That's a place that trips parents up that are using narration. When they switch from oral narrations to written narrations, even if they do it slowly, I think they're so dismayed at the quality of writing. Like it plummets back to, you know, age six, (laughs) basically, like what's on paper. And I think I have met so many moms that that completely freaked them out. Like, what is wrong with my child? Her oral narrations were so beautiful. And now this And Mm -hmm. it's an interesting thing about how adding that skill of trying to get it out through your hand on paper versus getting it out from your brain through your mouth. It just, it takes time. Yeah. It's normal for that to be a difficult transition. Well, and you use the term switch when you switch from oral narration to written narration. And to me, that's like, oh, it's a light switch. One day you're doing oral and all of a sudden they're 10 and now you're going to do written narration. And I think we need to address that because that's really not the case at all, is it? Okay, you're right. It's it's when you add it. And for me, at least, around age 10, fourth grade, something like that, we go from everything being narrated to one day per week, they produce one written narration. And then we slowly work up to where they are doing at least one written narration a day. But that's over a period of years that we work up to that, depending on the child and their ability and that kind of thing. So my 11-year-old writes four written narrations a week, I think. But my 10-year-old writes one. And my 14-year-old writes every single day. But that's a little different because high school. So I don't know what you're doing. But for me, yeah. So we've replaced one oral narration with written instead per week. Right. So it's not a switch. It's a gradual change where you're starting to introduce this new skill and you're working on it because I think it can be different for different subjects because I have noticed that Olivia many times will do better with a written narration for literature than a written narration for history. That could have to do too with the book. 
True. Well, it could, but we're using the uh, Dorothy Mills books from Memoria Press as our history books. Mm-hmm. The story of the ancient world, I think, is the one we're using right now for ancient history. So it's not like it's a textbook. Right. But the children's Homer by Patrick Collum is, you know, much more exciting. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> what they're engaged that you can see which one they're more engaged with. <laughs> what about you, Missy? Are you doing narration right now? Yeah. My older two do two written narrations a week. It's each a paragraph. I didn't do any written narration until after we had done writing instruction. So, you know, mm. they'd learned to write a paragraph and kind of in a narration way because we did it the IEW style. I didn't exactly okay. use their program, but it's the same concept. They were comfortable writing a good paragraph on a single topic before I assigned them written narrations. So then your transition probably wasn't as much of a transition. It wasn't because we also weren't doing oral narrations before that. (laughs) 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 So it wasn't really a transition. (laughs) Because I was a narration dropout. I flunked narration when they were little (laughs) and gave up. (laughs) And so it's only in the last two years or so where I've come back and um, making making atonement. (laughs) Are you having your little ones do oral narration now, Misty? Yes, but it's a little bit different because the subjects that we would do narration for, you know, history and like Old Testament Bible and science are in our elementary lessons group. So there's Mm -hmm. about six kids and I read aloud to six kids And narration has been a lot easier to integrate back in in that setting than it was when it was one-on-one. I think that was just partly the way I was approaching it when I was one-on-one with my older kids. Mm -hmm. Somehow I came across as wanting something in particular and they kind of froze and then I'm impatient Uh, and it was this spiral that just was not good. I cannot Mm -hmm. believe that you, Misty Winkler, intimidated anyone (laughs) especially my poor feeling children (laughs) it's called sanctification it is so in the group setting there's just less pressure for one person to do everything and we can mix it up really easily so i have a dice and there are six kids after we finish a chapter, I'll roll the dice and just say, can you tell me about, you know, whoever the name of the person we read about? Although one thing that has made it better this year than last year is last year I would just read the next chapter and then ask them to narrate. And it was always really bad. It was an exercise in me not being disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. So I did, I made a couple changes this year that have helped a lot. And the first one is while I'm pulling out the book, I always say, so who did we read about last time? Mm, Yeah. So that they're always, before I start, they've started thinking about history again. Where were we last time? So their attention is drawn to it. I'm making them think. They're reviewing And just having that formula, like I always say it that way. So Mm -hmm. that makes it habit and I actually do it. It's like, okay, this is not a big deal. Just say, who did we read about last time? Yeah. Who did we read about last time? All right. Who did we read about last time? Yeah. That's how I start my Plutarch lesson. Yep. And then I have a whiteboard 
and I write the name of the person or the event that we're going to be reading about. Because what I realized last year was with me reading aloud and them only listening, they actually had no idea how to spell any of these names or events that we had been learning about. Because we played Hangman. (laughs) As a review game, we played Hangman. (laughs) <laughs> and it just brought to light, like, they had no idea how to spell it <laughs> or say it because they had never seen the words themselves. Because you were reading it all out loud. I was just reading it all out loud. So a change I made this year was putting the names up on the board. And so now they have a visual. They've seen the names. But also when I ask them for a narration, I want a narration about one of those things that's up on the board. They also copy the name into their notebook. So they've done a little copy work, I guess. It's been a good change. But it keeps it gets their attention. Now they're listening for that name. Like they know what is coming. So I, I feel like it helps them pay better attention. Yeah, I could see that. And then sometimes what we'll do for narration is just go all around the circle and say, youngest to oldest, tell me one thing that you remember about Henry V or Richard the Lionheart. And so, yeah. you know, one kid will say, he was brave. <laughs> <laughs> An older kid will say something, and so then that's just review for everyone. Or then someone will just say something like, yeah, he was brave. But then someone else will say something and say, oh, 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 I remember. Yeah. One of the things I like to do that I haven't been doing enough with my Plutarch class, well, I didn't do enough with it last term, so I'm hoping to remember to do it better this coming term. But I use the dice to get us started, and sometimes for a couple other things that I won't go into. So I choose the first person, but then I let them go for a minute or two. And they're supposed to be trying to do it consecutively. It doesn't always work out that way, of course, but they're trying to start at the beginning and end at the end as much as possible. So the dice rolls, that's the first person to go. They go for a couple of minutes and then I stop them. And then we either maybe start with the next person or I roll the dice again and we choose the next person. And so that person's supposed to pick up where they left off and go for a couple minutes. Anyhow, so all together, they're trying to build this sequential narration, but it gives more people a chance to talk. Because I've got 10 kids in my class. So I feel like if I don't do something like that, it could be weeks before some of these kids get to narrate. (laughs) Yeah. We only meet once a week. And anyhow, but that kind of like popcorn narration thing, I like it. Well, another thing that we do that I think it counts as narration. We're doing botany this year for science. And instead of having them retell, they sketch Hmm. So like we were just learning the different categories of fruits and what, you know, what fruits are actually berries, you know, tomatoes are actually berries, that sort of thing. And so we put up on the board the different categories I wrote and they copied. So now they've copied those words that should help with spelling a little tiny bit. And then they drew tomatoes and bananas and nuts and things in the right boxes as I read aloud from the book. That's kind of similar to something that's been working really well here. And I had wanted to share it in this podcast. One of my children who has historically really struggled with narration and struggled in general with some memory issues anyway, just losing things, forgetting things, that kind of thing. Instead of going straight from the reading to the saying it out loud, she's given, I don't know, maybe five minutes or something to do a sketch of what she remembers. Hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like stick figures. It's nothing fancy. It's not an illustration by any means, but it's more like a comic strip. She kind of starts at the top of her page and circles around down to the bottom. And then for her narration, she's actually explaining the drawing to me. 
Mm-hmm. So she starts at the beginning and points and says, oh, this, you know, this guy's doing this, this guy's doing this, and this is, and she's explaining all of it. I've just realized, so she's been reading um, The Greeks by uh, Gerber. Just, oh, Story mm-hmm. of the Greeks. And her narrations went from horrendous to really good when we started adding that in. It has been amazing. And so I've just kind of opened it up to her. Like anytime she wants to start with a sketch, she's now allowed to because it is so much better. I don't know why exactly that helps her get it out of her head into her mouth, but that transition of drawing the sketches has just been so helpful. And that's for an oral narration? Yeah. So she does it as like a visual for her. So her oral narration becomes more like a presentation to me with a visual. That's her visual. So she is walking me through her sketch and her sketches. It's not divided into comic strip boxes, but that's basically what it is because it's like, this is what happens at the beginning of the story and this is further in the story. And this is, so she's drawn a sequence of events in the story just with little stick figures and little box houses. And it's all really simple because she only gets a few minutes to do it, but it's helped so much, so much. Well, I think that's why it's good to remember what is the principle at the bottom of this practice so that we could see, you know, things like that aren't cheating or, you know, doing it wrong or anything when the reason that you do narration is so that their mind is working with the material. If their mind is working with it, and they're talking about it, that is when learning is happening. So that's all that's what you're trying to get happening. It's a great test you know, to find out what they're learning, a way to assess and all that. But really, at the core, the point is that they are working with that material in their heads and expressing it in their own words. Yeah. I think this is probably like the most important thing we're going to say today. (laughs) Other than like (laughs) taking the transition from oral to written, not being a switch. This was such a huge thing for me when I started. And I know Misty has expressed that she felt this way too. And this was why she struggled keeping going with narration. It was the exact same thing for me. It felt like I was looking at my kid and saying, okay, you tell me back what I just read to you. And not only was I feeling dumb because I knew I had just read it to him. I knew what it said. (laughs) But I felt Mm -hmm. like the kid was looking at me like I was dumb because like, Mm -hmm. why should I have to do this? You know what you read. Right. This is one of those, well, why do I have to learn this moments? It was like, why do I have to do this? Because you know what you just read. And it wasn't until I came to the realization that it's not that I'm testing them on what they've heard. That's not it at all. It's that I'm giving them the opportunity to learn this skill, to work through this material in their head so that they come out on the other side knowing it better, that the conviction to do narration made more sense to me. And then explaining it to the kid, looking the kid in the face and saying, I know you think this is a little silly because I just read this too, but this is what we're trying to do here. This is the purpose of this practice. When you have a seven or eight-year-old, you have to kind of tell them in a way that they're going to understand, but you just have to say, look, I know, I know what you're going (laughs) to tell me. I just read it, but it's in the practice of retelling me in your own words that you learn it and explaining that to them so they don't look at you like you're crazy. And I don't know that I've fully convinced my kids, even we've been doing it about a year now. I still don't know that they're fully convinced that I'm not testing them. (laughs) 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 But I don't care because they're doing it. And I know that that's not the point. And one day they'll appreciate it. Kind of like learning their math facts. One day they'll appreciate that I made them do that. 
Well, it has been easier doing oral narrations with the older kids when I'm not the one reading it aloud to them. Hmm. My oldest is doing logic with introductory logic. Mm-hmm. And so he ha- he watches the video lesson and does the exercises in the book. But one of the things that he does is he and I, we go get steps together. So we go outside and we walk up and down the street and he tells me what was in this lesson. To him, it feels like him just telling me, this is what I learned about. And right. you know he's enjoying the lesson. So he feels like he's informing me. With that kind of feeling behind it to him, his narrations are much better than when it's, you know, like me pulling something back out. So it's definitely not a test when you don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I do think it's important to remember with older kids that if you don't get every single thing read, then as long as they have integrity... Because I, I mean, I have met some people who are like, I have to read it because I don't know if this child will make something up or not. You know what I mean? But right. But if you have a child that's not trying to trick their way through <laughs> narrations or something, then I've noticed that um, like with my oldest, there's a couple books I'm not reading of his. I try to read most so that we can discuss it. But there's a couple I decided we weren't really discussing very much. And so it was good for me to just not spend my time on those. Mm-hmm. And it is. It's a different thing when he's like, he's really telling me and I really don't know. So we can't have much of a discussion, but his narration has to be even that much better because my mind can't fill in those gaps because I didn't read it and I wasn't there. <laughs> right. Well, and I think that those teen boys also enjoy yeah. informing their mothers of something. <laughs> right. Because they know so much. So, you know. <laughs> but also going outside and getting steps, I think has made it a better dynamic rather than just sitting or especially like face-to-face staring at each other. (laughs) It's not confrontational feeling, right? Yes. Yes. It's just like walking up and down and having a conversation. Like the more that it feels natural and organic, the better. So that's been a way for that to happen for us is to say, okay, you need to tell me about, well, plus, I mean, I need to get to 10,000 every day. So it's like (laughs) multitasking, but it helps it have that natural feel for us. You know, I was looking through this article on narration, and I'll put it in the show notes, but it's from the Parents Review magazine, which there's a whole bunch of old ones on the Ambleside website, and it's called Some Notes on Narration. And I was noticing that they even included, I mean, they were talking about dealing with really big classes. So they're saying, you know, a class of 40 would do this. So narration obviously is going to change versus if it's one-on-one versus a small group versus a big group or whatever. So they even have an example of the teacher reading aloud. And then you know how they used to have those double desks? So in all the old books, they talk about your desk partner. Oh, right. That's one of the things they would do is that they would say, okay, child on the left, narrate to the child on your right narrate to your seat partner, basically. And so the teacher wasn't even hearing all the individual narrations. Half the class was narrating and half the class was listening. And since they're narrating what everybody heard, you kind of assume that the seat partner could correct if something was wrong or they thought was missing. But I thought this was interesting because I had a friend who was telling me that she was having trouble fitting in a narration because she was working with one of her non-reading children, you know, that had to be have everything read aloud. And she did this. She had two of her children who were able to read the same history book 
they read it together and narrated to each other. Yeah. And it worked really well because they were really happy to correct each other. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Because the point is that they are working with the material with their own minds and not that the teacher is testing them necessarily or checking. It's not just checking the box. Okay, we did that. (laughs) Right. Okay, so when we talk about backing up to like these basic principles or whatever, narration is retelling, recreating what you've learned yourself. So it's that working with the material like you're saying. And there's a lot of different ways to do that. And that's okay. Because I do think there's this sense of, well, we, like you said, that we check the box, that it has to be this one way. So the child sits Mm -hmm. here and I sit there and he does everything exactly this particular way. And then that's a narration. Mm -hmm. I think it's good to, well, I even, I even found a quote. If I can find it again, I put it in our notes. It's from that same article from some notes on narration. So it makes a little comment about the teacher breaking in a class. So a class that hasn't narrated before, like being patient when they're learning and all that stuff. But then it says, there are many ways of conducting narration. Every good teacher will have his own. Mm. And throughout the article, before that is even said, I think it's before that, kind of long. There's this sense of, The teacher being that wise person overseeing the class. So he says things like, well, an observant teacher will be watching the class and will know where where he needs to be, like where his presence is needed. And he'll know when people are done. There's this sense of the freedom of the teacher to conduct the narration in the way that he thinks is fitting for his own students. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important that everybody feel that, that it's not like everybody has to fit in the same narration box Right. That's my little soapbox for today. (laughs) Yeah. I will tell you that one of the things that really kept me from doing narration for a long time was I always felt like I was doing it wrong. Yep. Me too. Mm, Really? You know, like you read something to a kid and they look at you and you're like, okay, tell me back. And first of all, they look at you like you're crazy. And then they give you like the most pitiful mumbling of one and a half sentences that you've ever received in your life. And then they're like, and I don't remember anything else. Well, then what the heck do you do? Mm -hmm. You know, you can't read it to them again. That's against the rules. (laughs) (laughs) So I think for me, it actually took kind of becoming a student and really (laughs) pinning. So this is why I podcast pinning somebody down and asking them all the questions I ever wanted to know. Yeah. And they were forced to sit there and tell me the answers. God bless her. (laughs) That I felt like, okay, now I have an answer to all my questions. And I actually think I might can do this. I know what to do now. Actually, I don't really have the problem anymore of the kid looking at me and telling me I don't remember. Because we put things in place, like Misty said, at the front end, Mm -hmm. writing the things on the whiteboard. You know, I know what an entire narration lesson looks like now Mm -hmm. and all the parts of it. And it's not just open the book, read and look at them and say, tell me back what I read. You Mm -hmm. know? Yeah. And also sometimes being okay when it is painful and not feeling myself like, okay, I must have failed because that was horrible. Right. Yes. And it's a learned skill. It, it's hard. Yeah, it takes time. And you ha- it's, it's really hard and it takes time. You have, to, you have to go through a bunch of bad ones before you get to some that start looking decent. And it's okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, I wasn't going to read the part before that quote, but it fits so perfectly that I'm going to. So right before it says, every good teacher will have his own. Leading up to that, this is what it says. The true measure of the value of narration can only be gleaned by a teacher who persists with his own pupils. And then I'm going to skip a little bit. 
The teacher must restrain himself when breaking in a class. It will be weeks, perhaps months, before the majority are fluent. Impatience must never be shown when the children mumble a few words instead of giving a brilliant narration. (laughs) And they must never be prompted or interrupted. Even in here, in a school that used narration all the time, there was this acceptance of the fact that it might take a month before somebody gives a decent narration. And it's just so comforting, right, to know that It's not just me. No, it's not. (laughs) It's almost everybody. I only had one child that didn't have to be trained, and she was, like, at six months tattling on everybody. Like, she was just born to tell. (laughs) Okay. Here's another quote from John Milton Gregory in The Seven Laws of Teaching. And this is yet another law. Seriously, talking about the material, having the student talk about the lesson is in almost every one of the seven laws. Oh, interesting. And so I thought this was especially interesting because of the metaphor that he uses. So he says, It follows from all this that only when the mental powers work freely and in their own way can the product be sure or permanent. No one can know exactly what any mind contains or how it performs, save as that the mind imperfectly reveals it by words or acts, or we can conceive it by reflecting on our own conscious experience. Just as the digestive organs must do their own work, masticating and digesting whatever food they receive, selecting, secreting, assimilating, and so building bone, muscle, nerve, and all the various tissues and organs of the body, so too, in the last resort, the mind must perform its function without external aid, building as it can concepts, faith, purposes, and all forms of intelligence and character. Hmm. What's the Charlotte Mason quote, Brandy, about Oh, it's a big one that people throw around all the time, sometimes as an argument for unschooling. But um, <laughs> uh, what's the one? You know the one I'm talking about. Is it the feast? Like the coming to the table, everyone comes to the table? Well, no. No? You can't teach somebody. Uh, all education is self-education? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's, that's. Phew, that's I passed the test. <laughs> you did. <can't. laughs> <laughs> that was scary for a minute. I had every confidence oh, that you knew. Thanks. I didn't, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Even from my really bad description of what, of, of it. But yeah, that's what that makes me think of. Yeah. yeah. I know a lot of people like, oh, it should be relaxed. It should be something the kid's interested in. Look, she was an unschooler. No, this is what she's talking about. This self-education is the, the workings act. of the brain. Right. It's, it's yeah. the student's act. Not, yeah. It's yeah. not something we can do to them or for them. Right. Well, and ultimately, that really was the foundation of her objection to unit studies. Like if you really read through what she was saying about them, it was that the teacher was learning more than the student because the teacher was the one that was tying everything together and finding all the connections. And so all of that in her mind was the act of learning, but the teacher was doing it and the students were just kind of passively along for the ride. And so she wanted to turn everything on its head and the student was supposed to do that kind of processing. And then they would notice, you know, the relationships between things as they went along and all of that. But yeah, her objection was more that whoever's doing the most work is doing the most learning. And so if we're really trying to teach, it's not about us being lazy and passing stuff off to them, but that they need to be the ones doing the learning or it's we're not being effective. Oh, yeah, I totally say this. I think I said it in the Confident Homeschooler that... Mm. The kids have to be working harder than the teacher. Mm -hmm. If you're working harder than your kids, you're doing them a disservice. Yeah. Yep. 
Here's the part of the chapter in The Law of the Learner. Knowledge cannot be passed like a material substance from one mind to another, for thoughts are not objects which may be held and handled. Ideas can be communicated only by inducing in the receiving mind processes corresponding to those by which the ideas were first conceived. Ideas must be rethought. Experience must be re-experienced. It is obvious, therefore, that something more is required than mere presentation. The pupil must think. Teacher and textbook may be full of information, but the learner will get from them only so much as his power of attention enables him to shape it in his own mind. Hmm. You know I've never read this book, right? You're making me want to read it. You should read it. It's short. You've made me want to read it before because you quoted it. I did a whole podcast season on it. <laughs> I See, I feel like I've read it because of that. So, <laughs> there you go. There you But go. as you're reading these quotes, I'm like, I really should read it. It's really good. <laughs> it's in the public domain too, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's free online somewhere. So there's like no excuse not to read it. That's right. I was actually surprised that he wrote it before Charlotte Mason. Yeah, because some of the ideas sound very similar, like the emphasis on attention too. Yeah, I caught that. Eerily, eerily similar. But you know, I was reading Anne of Green Gables today and Miss Stacy, there are so many things that sound like a Charlotte Mason teacher. I mean, they do these like outdoor field days where they're keeping a nature journal and all sorts of things. But it was published in 1905. And I have a hard time thinking, uh, I mean, I could be wrong, but that Montgomery had much to do with what Charlotte Mason was doing in England in 1905. Like maybe if it had been closer to the 20s, that would make sense to me. I don't know. Maybe maybe, maybe she did have some experience, but it's really similar. I'm just going to go out here and say this. I think this just goes to show that Charlotte Mason was building on things that had come before her, that it didn't just fall from her out of the sky. <laughs> well, the introduction to Seven Laws of Teaching, he says... These are things everybody knows. I just thought it would be a good idea to put them in order in one place. Yeah. He says, this is common sense. All teachers know this. But it was a little bit after Charlotte Mason that educators pretty much rejected yeah. what all educators knew before that. Right. And so we come at it and whoever we encounter first, we say, oh, my goodness, they were brilliant. But it's like, okay, everyone used to know this. <laughs> It's just us. <laughs> I feel that way about a lot of things, like housekeeping. <laughs> oh, my a, goodness. There was a time when everybody knew how to do it, right? <laughs> yep. <sighs> they didn't need Fly Lady. Yeah, really. I think I need Fly Lady to live at my house, but that's another subject for another day. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, we've been doing this for a while. So is there anything else we should touch on before we go to our nitty gritty question. You think anything you want to wrap us up with guys? I just want to say it was fun. I really enjoyed the conversation. If we could do this like once a week, then I might not need a break from my school ARTA because now I've got like, you know, I'm kind of energized and inspired to go out and look at a, a couple things. And so I'm telling you, I think this podcast is school A for me. Yeah. The, the recording part, not the editing part. The editing part is definitely work, but it feels like that. It's refreshing it to talk to I would guys. agree. Yeah. It's energizing. Yep. All right. So this week's nitty gritty homeschool question is actually not a homeschool question. It's a mom question, a homeschool mom question. So it was, how do you mom narrate your readings to your husband, book club, journal, etc.? 
especially when pre-reading the school books. So Brandy is going to have to answer this one. Yep. What, you people don't pre-read? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a good mom. <laughs> I went kind of like, oh, no, I'm horrible. But then I remembered I'm not my child's primary teacher of that stuff. <laughs> they do. She does it at co-op. Oh, true. <laughs> so right. Like, You're off the hook. I'm off the hook. I do read it with her. So that's what I'm doing wrong. <laughs> I don't narrate all of my pre-reading. Because I give myself this very limited number of hours on a single day where I'm trying to pre-read everything. And if I was to stop and narrate everything, I would literally not have enough time to do it. So that was not always true, but it's true now that we're in high school. It's just so many readings. And I did not increase my amount of time to read. I'm trying to like shove high school into the same number of hours that I was using for sixth grade. <laughs> so, <laughs> But I do come home and talk to my husband about the things that were the most interesting to me. So I do think that qualifies as a narration, but it's not like literally every single reading gets a narration. I bring my commonplace book with me. So some things get just copied into a commonplace. And that's the extent of my mulling it over. I guess I also have a book of centuries. But anyway, so I think it's like I've got these different things that I might do with the material commonplace book of centuries narration. I try to do one of those things. I don't always do one of those things for everything, but I try to like that's kind of my goal. But to say that I'm going to narrate every single thing, it just isn't going to happen. Yeah, yeah. But I don't even pre-read. So there's that. <laughs> I guess I do. I'm teaching a literature class. And so I read that before our class. I'd hoped to finish them all in the summer before we even got started. But that didn't happen. But I am reading ahead and thinking, you know, what are we going to be talking about? What's a theme that I could pull out that can be our thread that we follow? Yeah, And so then I'll mark those when I find them. And I'm having them mark with post-it flags. But I mark with post-it flags and then also jot some notes just about what directions I might take the conversation, questions I might ask them to get them talking. Mm -hmm. I commonplace a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I did start, so I'm reading The Great Tradition. And I was just copying out my favorite quotes. But there were several sections where I might read a whole page and it, there wasn't necessarily one sentence that jumped out because it's like this whole page length thought. And so I did in my commonplace journal start, I do a little squiggly line and that means like my summary and try oh, to yeah. boil it down. Like he said this and that really helped me start keeping people straight. And can I say, what is this guy's one point? Mm. And to have that in my notebook that's a good exercise. It's not straight narrating, you know, that's summarizing. But that's my mind right. having to work and distill and express it my own way. And so when I do it, it's great. Yeah. When I really want to understand something, like when I'm wrestling with the last time I really did it was when I was reading like Norms and Nobility or the mm -hmm. liberal arts tradition or something like that. I make charts. Yeah. yeah. I'll take a page and divide it up and make some charts. That's what helps me is to to make a big chart on my like, I guess it's like a graphic organizer, which I don't know yeah. what the Charlotte Mason party line is on that. But, you <laughs> know, I'm distilling the information in my head and putting it into this chart that I'm drawing. I would consider mm -hmm. that a kind of narration. You're organizing the information yourself. You're working with the information. So yep. I mean, I'm not Charlotte Mason. I'm just me. But that's what I think. <laughs> <laughs> Misty, you reminded me when you said you tried to read a lot of things in the summer before you even got started with school. Yes. 
If I was pre-reading in the summer, I think I would have to narrate because I don't think I would remember very well. Right. But instead, I'm only a week ahead. Like in the weekend, I read the readings for the week that's coming up. So I'm only, you know, at most five days ahead of my child or something like that. And so because of that, his narration kind of functions as my group narration because I do when he's done, I'll add something and we have a discussion. And so to some extent, I mean, I try not to take over, right, because it's his education, not mine. (laughs) But when he's done and whatever, we talk about it and I might add one thing that I thought maybe he forgot that was important or whatever. And and I find I remember these readings in case his sister is three years behind him. So I'm kind of trusting this whole process to get me through my other kids, even though I'm waiting three years between each each reading. And I do remember pretty well. So it's worked for me. But I think it's because I read it. And even though I'm not narrating right away most of the time, within five days, I'm going back over the material with someone. And I think it kind of functions like a narration, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Kind of solidifies it enough in my mind that I don't feel like I have to reread it to go back through it with kids. I just kind of skim it really quick when I know they're narrating to just refresh my memory. That kind of goes back to the the purpose of pre-reading versus the purpose of my personal reading. I do a lot more of the deliberate narrating journaling with books that I've chosen for me that are super important to me versus my goal in pre-reading is for me to remember enough to be able to answer my children's questions and interact with them in discussion. Yeah. The things I do for that are a little bit different than what I do for my personal reading. Mm -hmm. Yep. I don't know if that helps anybody, but it's the way I distinguish it in my mind. Well, Anything else on this one? Any Anything else on narrating your readings? Does anybody do any other creative narrations? I liked your charts, Pam, because I thought that was unique. Oh, I love the little, and I, I it's a hobby I don't have time to do, but the little Carrie Decker journal and doodle through the Bible. Oh, phase. yeah. Yeah. I do yeah. too. It's, it's sitting here. It's a little dusty. It's sitting on my desk and I need to pull it out. And I can't remember if it's Ephesians or John or Galatians or what it is, but it's like, oh, man, you know, I just, yeah, I love the thought of that. Like, oh, I'm going to draw these little pictures and it's going to help me remember things. Kind of like your, that's what I was thinking Mm -hmm. of when you were talking about your daughter and her comic strips. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Maybe sentence diagramming your way through. That would be, that'd be awesome. Sorry, I saw this comic of Yoda trying to dra- diagram a sentence the other day. I saw that. That <laughs> was hilarious. I saw that one. <laughs> it was all wrong. <laughs> That's pretty much what it looks like when I try to diagram a sentence without an answer key. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, true confession. <laughs> I've gotten a little better since we started Latin sentence diagramming, but not better enough. <clears throat> I used to just, I'd read and then my husband would come home from work and I'd like totally accost him with everything I learned that day. And he asked me to stop. (laughs) (laughs) This is a long time ago, 11 or 12 years ago. So shortly thereafter, I started a blog. (laughs) There you go. go. The real reason why I have a blog. (laughs) Yeah, that is what I think when I read something and I'm really excited about processing the thought. And that's what my first thought is blog post. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm right there with you. All right. I think we should wrap it up. I'm looking at the time and um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) Thank you for this gift of editing hours. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was nice talking to you guys. Thank you for... This was fun. It was fun. Okay. See you guys 
next time. Have a good weekend, everybody. You too. That's it for today. Thank you so much for listening and being a part of the sisterhood of the podcast. We hope you will all head over and give us some reviews, especially if you are listening on iTunes or Stitcher. We are thrilled to announce that Dr. Christopher Perrin is going to be on the show next time. Misty and I had a delightful conversation with him concerning the balance between the need for things like hard work and developing grit and perseverance with the idea that school A is restful and effortless. It's a fantastic conversation that you won't want to miss, so make sure you're subscribed. Until then, we want to remind you once again that homeschooling is a marathon you needn't run alone. So open up your eyes and look around you. Find your sisters. Do you have a Scully RDA, Pam? Nope. (laughs) And Misty, you sound horrible, by the way. Uh Uh-oh. Are you sick? My sound? What? No. No, your your voice. You're not sick? (laughs) No. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Really? No, I can't hear you. you. It it sounds a lot better when you're not on. (laughs) (laughs) I actually ordered dinner for my family and had it delivered while we were up here doing this. Oh my gosh. Can you send me some?